Welcome to today's Bible study with Pastor Josh Tice. The next time you're in Las Vegas, we'd love to meet you in person at Southern Hills. If you happen to watch us regularly, please like and subscribe to our YouTube channel and consider sharing this video with a friend. You can support the ministries of Southern Hills by visiting southernhillslv.com and clicking the Give tab. Now, sit back, relax, and get ready to learn how the Bible is relevant in your life today. Are you glad to be in church today? If you are, let's praise God together. Amen. Show up at church. Pastor doesn't even know his cue, but here we are. We're going to study the Bible from Luke chapter number 7, verses 1 and following Luke chapter number 7. If you didn't bring a Bible today, that's okay. Most of our scripture is going to be on the screen, but we are a Bible studying church. So we're going to go through a passage, see what it says, and see how it applies to our life today. If you want a physical copy of the Bible and you don't have one, I want to give one to you for free. Or my guest services team, which is out in the front, they will give you a free Bible. All you have to do is ask, and they will give it to you. The sermon series is entitled Demo Day, Demo Day, and it's a three-week sermon series, three weeks where we're going to be talking about this concept, the gracious destruction of your perfectly organized world. The first sermon is entitled Perfectly Organized World. And it happened. It was bound to happen. It happened a few years ago now, probably three years. And the amount of times I've sat in a Starbucks, it was bound to happen. I've never shared this story that I'm aware of. In fact, I'm not sure that I've ever shared it publicly, but I'm going to do it now. And the reason I haven't shared it publicly is because it's a little bit, it's a little embarrassing. And, and I've shared some embarrassing stories before, but I'm going to do it. Nonetheless, now I sit at Starbucks a lot. I've sat with you. I have coffee. We counsel. We do small groups. We talk. We study the Bible together. But a lot of times what I like to do is, is sometimes I'll go to a coffee shop far away from this part of the community so I can be alone and get out my study tools and just spend some time preparing the sermons that I'm doing right now. So I, I found one way up in Summerlin and and I sat down, I put my Bible down, very specific, uh, in a very specific way. I put my notepad out and my pen out, very, very specific, how I like it. I put a few books on the table. I put everything in order, plugged my, my plug in for my computer, put my computer out, put my phone down. Very, very, how many of you are very specific like I am when you set up? You want everything specifically in its place. How many of you like that? Raise your hand. All right, very good. How many of you live with somebody like that and it drives you nuts? All right, very good, all right. So that's me. I'm sitting there, and I've got everything, and I'm away from everybody that I know, so I'm not bothering everybody, but I have my stuff where I want it. And after I do that, I sat down, and I had my cup of coffee. I put it down, and uh, then it happened. I, I had a sudden realization that I had to, um, I had to go. They, they have a special room at Starbucks where you go to take care of specific individual activities. And so I, I, I'm like, oh, no, I don't want to pack everything up. So I, I took my computer and my phone, you know, and I walked over to that room and I opened up that room and I went inside that room. They have a single, single room rooms, so you know what I mean? How many of you know what I'm talking about? We don't want to get too specific here. And I locked and, and well, I, I shut the door and I put my stuff down and I prepared to um, use the uh, adequate uh, 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 furniture that they have in the room. And so as I, as I went to get involved with my uh, occupation, 
I had forgotten to lock the door. And I didn't know this until just a few moments later when somebody came in. And when they came in, it was very awkward for myself and for the individual because instead of walking in and quickly walking out, they walked in and I don't know why I didn't say anything to me. Like, somebody's in here! But instead, I, I just, my, my voice caught and they opened and they, the weirdest part was they looked up and our eyes locked for a moment. <laughs> which is the most awkward moment. And it was one second too long, you know what I mean? And finally he broke and he's, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm like, I'm sorry. And he shut the door. And I'm like, oh man, that's terrible. And that was nothing compared to leaving the bathroom. Because when I walked out, he was still there. And as I walked by him in shame, he looked at me and I looked at him and our eyes locked once more and I knew and he knew and we both knew that we would never speak of this moment for three years until I publicly reveal it to our church. And I walked out of that Starbucks that day and hand to God, this is true, I have never gone back to that location. I will never. <laughs> for you, are there moments that God will put in your life that he reminds you you're not in control? Are there moments in your life that God will give you moments where you, it reminds you that you're not as cool, confident, and collected as you thought you were? You're not set out everything in order. The way you planned your day, the way you planned your month, the way you planned this year may not go exactly the way you thought it would go. And then suddenly, you're caught off guard just a little bit. And you don't really want to speak of it too often. Well, that's what we're speaking of today. We're speaking of that concept today, next week, and the week after about the perfectly organized world in which you find yourself, in which you've made around you. You've crafted it. It's an image that you like to believe. And then it's an image you like to project. You like to post. You like to allow others to see you in this perfectly organized world. And as you are in this perfectly organized world, one small crack can bring crisis. One small accident can bring devastation. Chaos and lack of control lead you to a place of anxiety, fear, and depression. And so was the case when we arrive in Luke chapter 7 for four individuals. If you're new here, we're working our way through the book of Luke. And over the next three weeks, we're going to look at four individuals who each and every one were faced with what, these moments of crisis where chaos and confusion entered in and completely erupted everything in their life. And there's one thought that I want you to deeply grasp as we walk through these three weeks, these four stories. And that thought is this. In crisis... Christ is in control. This is the one thing I want you to learn today in the next two weeks. In crisis, Christ is in control. Can you say that with me today? In crisis, Christ is in control. Say it again, say it again. In crisis, Christ is in control. That's the main thought. When your perfectly organized world is falling apart, what does God want you to know? There are three truths from God's word that we see in this passage. God wants you to remember, number one, number one, here's the first point of today's sermon. Number one, in crisis, Christ is in control. You say, that's just like the main thought. Exactly, it is. I want you to emphasize it. Let's 
say it together. Point number one. In crisis, Christ is in control. Say it again. Say it again. In crisis, Christ is in control. Look at the story of this man who had a moment of crisis. A very powerful, rich, strong, important man who had a crisis. Look at what it says in verse one. Now... When Jesus concluded all of his sayings in the hearings of the people, he entered Capernaum. If you weren't here the last couple of weeks, we were preaching through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And he left the hills of Galilee and he arrived in the town of Capernaum, which was Jesus' um, base of operations. It was the same town where Peter, James, John, and Andrew had lived. That's where they lived. And Jesus kind of set up shop from there. He would go and preach all over the countryside, but he would always go back to Capernaum. And so now he was back in Capernaum after his Sermon on the Mount. And when he arrives there, he's arriving in the midst of somebody's crisis. Look at verse 2. And a certain centurion's servant, who was dear to him, was sick and was ready to die. So when he, the centurion, heard about Jesus, he sent the elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servants. So Jesus gets back to town, and he's faced with this crisis. You see, there was a guy who was a very important man. He was referred to as a centurion. Now, a centurion was not a Jewish individual, even though this was a Jewish community. You see, Israel had been taken over by an overlord by the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had expanded dramatically over the, la- the previous 150 years. After the fall of the Greek Empire, the Romans really filled that void of power and expanded their empire even further than the Greeks. And though the Jews had their own nation, it was, it was Rome that was in charge of them. Not only in charge of them, they taxed them heavily. And to make sure that the people were going to pay their taxes, they put military leaders in their hometown to demand that they pay their taxes. And the people that were led by the military or the leaders of the military, well, they were, they were ranks. And one of the ranks was that a centurion. He was a militaristic leader. And a centurion means he was in charge of 100 soldiers. One guy in charge of 100 soldiers, a very important man. Not only a very important man, a very wealthy man we're going to see because Rome paid him greatly to go all the way over there and watch this really troublesome area and be in charge of 100 different soldiers. But the Bible tells us he was not only a wealthy man, he actually had a large estate and he also had many servants. One of his servants, the Bible says, got sick. Now, it's true that some very important wealthy people have employees and they don't care about their employees at all. This is not true of this man. This man was a very powerful, wealthy man, but he genuinely cared about his employees. In fact, the Bible says of this guy that this, this servant of his was very dear to him. I know you work with people and some of the people you work with are just fine. And some of the people you work with, you can have a genuine, deep relationship, friendship to a point of brotherhood. It appears that's the way this guy felt about his boss and how this boss felt about his servant. And so his servant gets extremely sick. The Bible says to the point of death. So this guy's friend is so sick, he's at the point where you would bring in our nomenclature, 
our terminology, we'd say we'd bring hospice in. He's ready to die. This is end of life care. This guy had probably spent all the money he could to take care of his servant. He's probably saw all the doctors in the area to take care of his servant. There's nothing he can do to find out how to heal this guy. But then he hears there's a rabbi who travels around the region and he heals blind people and he heals deaf people and he makes people who can't walk get up and walk. He even has the power to get rid of leprosy. And he's thinking to himself, his name is Jesus. If I could get Jesus to help my friend, everything will be okay. So he's like, okay, this is my plan. I'm not just a normal guy. I shouldn't just go out and try to find Jesus. So instead, I'll use my influence in the community and try to get them to bring Jesus to me. So his mind, he's thinking this. He's thinking, okay, he's a religious Jewish rabbi who travels and preaches. I, because I'm very important, know the religious leadership of the Jewish community. I'll go ask them to get Jesus to come to me. Because certainly they know Jesus and they like Jesus. Here's a question for my Bible students. Any Bible students in the room? If you are, say amen. We've been studying the book of Luke. Do the religious leaders like Jesus or do they hate Jesus? They do not like Jesus. They hate Jesus. So now this guy goes to these very important religious leaders and they're like, hey, um, oh, yes, sir. Here you are. Yes. Can we help you? Yes. Um, I've heard about this rabbi. You must know him. Good friend of yours. Why are you asking? Well, I need him to come and heal my servant. Do you know him? Oh, yes, we can get him. And so this guy convinces these people who don't like Jesus to go out and find Jesus to bring Jesus to heal his servant. Now, this is a weird situation. So now they go out to find Jesus and beg Jesus to come heal this very important political rich guy's servant. So this is where we pick up, verse 4. And when they came to Jesus, they begged Jesus earnestly, saying, you've got to come and heal this person. Why? That the one whom he should do so is deserving, for he loves our nation and has built a synagogue. So here's all this religious people. Can you picture them in their big robes, in their big hats, and they go walk up to Jesus? Jesus is a carpenter. He's just a homeless, literal rabbi walking around, camping out at village to village. These big religious leaders come to Jesus, and they're like, <clears throat> We have a question for a very, very important person. And she's like, yes, can I, you want, you want my help? Yes, there's, there's a very important man, and he's very deserving of your healing. We want you to come and heal his servant. Will you please, will you please come and do this for us? I love the fact that they think they have to convince Jesus to come and heal somebody Notice what it says, because he was deserving. Let me ask you a question. Does Jesus specialize in healing deserving people or undeserving people? If you study the scripture, you realize Jesus doesn't care what you've done. Jesus doesn't care your background. Jesus doesn't care your problems. Jesus doesn't care, care about the sin that you once carried. He wants to help you regardless of who you have helped or who you have hurt. And the Bible says that's exactly what Jesus does. And so they say he's very deserving. Now we, we learn a little bit more about who this guy was. He actually was a very helpful guy. He began to fall in love with the nation of Israel, also meaning he probably began to fall in love with the nation of Israel's God. The more he learned about Jehovah God, even though he believed in other gods, the more he was convinced this is the one true God. 
And not only that, he began to build them a synagogue. The synagogue, if you visit Capernaum today, some of you have visited, Drew and I, we've been to Capernaum together. And when we were there, the synagogue there, that's the synagogue that this guy built. He paid to build an actual, you can go there today and see the ruins of this synagogue. It's still there to this very day. This is who the guy is. Now, what happens in this story? Well, the Bible says Jesus shows up. Look at what it says in the, ver in the very next verse, verse 6. And Jesus went to them, and when he had already was not far from the house where the centurion lived, the centurion sent friends to him, saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter into, under my roof. Therefore, I do not even think myself worthy to come to you. Notice how humble this guy is. He actually sends a messenger and says, hey, our boss tells you, you don't even have to come all the way. You're, he's, he said he's not worthy for you, somebody so important to even come into his house. Wow, that's humility. But, I, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. All you have to do is while you're on the road, just say healed and he'll be healed. Now, why did this guy think like this? Look at verse 8. For I am a man placed under authority, having soldiers unto me. And I say, go to one and he goes and to another come and he comes. And, and to my servant, do this and he does it. See, the guy's rationale, he was a military man, and as a military man, he knows how authority works. When I'm told to do something by my bosses, I just do what I'm told. And when my people need me, to, I need my people to do something, I just tell them and they do it. You seem to be a very powerful spiritual person. I'm pretty sure all you have to do is say the word and the guy will be healed. Why don't you say the word and, God, and the guy will be healed? This is great faith, that God has the authority to do whatever he wants to do. By the way, Jesus was impressed with that faith. Look at what it says in verses 9 and 10. This is really interesting. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not in all of Israel. The Bible only tells us two times that Jesus marveled at something. It means to be amazed and shocked. It's like walking in and saying, Wow, I did not expect that. Twice the Bible says Jesus experiences this feeling. The first time is in the Gospel of Mark, in the city of Nazareth where Jesus grew up, where Jesus, the Bible says, marveled at the lack of faith. He marveled at their unbelief. The second time Jesus marvels at something is he looks at a Gentile centurion and marvels that he has so much faith. I wonder if, I wonder if God is ever surprised by you. I wonder if he's ever surprised that you have so much faith in the midst of your tragedy. Or I wonder if he's surprised by the fact that you lack so much faith, even though he's brought you through so much. The Bible says he's shocked and he marvels. He said, I've never seen such great faith, not in the entirety of all of Israel. And then he says in verse 10, I love this, and those who were sent returned to the house found the servant who was well, uh, servant well who had been sick. So they go back to the house and sure enough, the guy was healed and all Jesus had to do was say, you're healed. What is this first thought that we're learning? We're learning that in crisis, Christ was in control in the middle of this guy's situation. All things, this is what I love about this guy. He understood that all things are under the authority of Christ. Can I, can I tell you, I don't know what crisis you're in the midst of. I don't know what crisis you're heading into. I don't know what crisis you're coming out of. But I will tell you, whatever crisis you face, in crisis, Christ is in control. 
It was 1992, and my father, who's also a pastor, was interviewed on the radio. I remember he sat us all down. He's like, listen, Dad got interviewed on the radio. I want you to hear this, you know. So we're all sitting there, and it was 1992, and they were interviewing him uh, about the election. Does anybody remember who was running for president in 1992? Anybody remember? Anybody remember? Who was it? It was George H.W. Bush, as well as who? Bill Clinton. Did somebody say Slick Willie? Somebody, I thought somebody said. That's funny. Um, it was George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton. They were running against each other in 1992. And my dad got called in for an interview at the radio station for whatever reason. And, and you know, they want to trap a pastor into saying the wrong thing. And, and uh, so there he was. And by the way, you don't have to trap a pastor saying the wrong thing. We get up every single week and uh, volunteer it a lot of times. You know what I mean? And, and so they got him on the radio and he was ready to interview. And they were asking him all sorts of questions. And finally, they asked a question that was really like a dangerous question for a pastor to answer. And uh, they said to him, they said, you know, Pastor Tice, Pastor, um, if Jesus were around today, who would he vote for? Now, before you shout out anything, I know some of you know far better than a pastor who had been pastoring for 25 years. You know really quickly. Um, but he did not answer so quickly, brilliantly, with great wisdom. Because the, the, the question, in a lot of ways, is a bit of a trap. First of all, the question was phrased wrong, if Jesus were still around today. How many of you agree with me, Jesus still is around today? Can I get an amen? See, he died upon the cross, was buried, but he rose from the grave and is alive today. So the very premise of the question was wrong, but he didn't get the lady on that. He just said, well, that's a very good question. She repeated, well, if Jesus were alive today, who would he vote for? And I love his answer. He said, you know, I got to tell you. I'm not sure, but I will say whoever he does vote for is probably going to win. That's a great answer. Do you know why? Because it, it validates the truth of the Bible that God is in control of all things. See, some of us as Christians, we forget that, don't we? We're like, sometimes God is really in control when everything turns out exactly the way I expected it to. God, you're in control. God's a good God. And then when things don't go exactly the way you see them from your very limited point of view and perspective, you're wondering, I don't know what's going on around here. And guess what? God is still in control. See, God is in control of elections. And God is in control of the economy. And God is in control of diseases. And God is in control of nature. And God is in control of your businesses. And God is in control of circumstances. See, God is in control. And the problem is sometimes we freak out because from our perspective, we see one thing out of order and we begin to begin a little bit freaked. Why, God, is things out of control? Things are not out of control. In crisis, even in crisis, even in crisis, God is in control. It could be what you're experiencing is the gracious destruction of your perfectly organized world. Do you, are, you bothered by, are you bothered by images like this? You're bothered by anybody here? And any of you here, you're like, yeah, please turn that off now. I am not. How many of you with this kind of thing, like you're, you're like me, this really bothers you. How many, of you? how many of you are like, I don't even see a problem. I really don't even. How many of you are like that? Some of you are like, you don't even see it. 
How about this next one? How about this next one? How many of you are like, please move it? Move the green M&M, put it in its place. How many of you are really bothered by this? Raise your hand, you're like, move. What about this next one? This is a maniac. This is a, I, what is wrong with this person? Go to the last one, go to the last one. You had one job. How many of you are so OCD about stuff that genuinely, how many of you are OCD about stuff that, that you have noticed something on the stage that you're like, please fix that block, please fix that. How many of you have been like, anybody, did you really? You're like, I'm gonna help this guy out right now. Look at this block out of place. And I'm gonna move this block just for that guy. Now, how do you feel? You feel better, right? And here's why. Because in our lives, we expect things to go exactly the way we expect things to go. And when they don't go exactly the way we expect things to go, we lose our control even though he never lost control. It shows our ability to have faith in his plan or our ability to doubt his plan. The first point I want you to see today, number one, in crisis, Christ is in control. Point number two. Point number two, in crisis, Christ is in control. He said, isn't that like the first, yes it is, let's say it together. In crisis, Christ is in control. Say it again, say it again. In crisis, Christ is in control. In the first story we learned about a centurion who was in a crisis. In the second story we learned about a mother who was in crisis. Look at what it says in verse number 11. Now it happened on this day after that, that Jesus went to the city called Nain. And many of his disciples went with him in a large crowd. So Jesus goes into this other town. A large crowd is following him. And he meets a large crowd coming out of the town. This is really interesting. Verse 12. And when Jesus came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow. This is interesting. Jesus arrives at a funeral procession. And the man being carried by the, by the pallbearers is, 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 a, is the only man left in his family. And the only person left is an elderly woman, a widow whose husband has died and she has no adult sons. This is a problem in the days of antiquity. The reason it's such a problem is because in their society, they did not have any social safety nets to really care for the poorest of the poor. So if you did not, as a woman, 2,000 years ago in this Middle Eastern culture, did not have a husband or did not have adult male heirs to care for you, you were in a big, big problem. The Bible says that Jesus arrives in this scenario and she's experiencing great sorrow and concern about not only losing her family, losing any aspect of a normal life economically. And a large crowd from the city was with her. They're, they're there for the funeral, verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, now notice this. The Lord Jesus saw her. Stop. When you're in the midst of crisis, you have to remember this foundational point, and that is Christ sees you. Others may not see you, but Christ sees you. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. Not only does Christ see her, Christ has compassion on her. He cares about this person. And he says, do not weep. Notice, Jesus Christ is not emotionally distant from this woman who is suffering. He actually cares about what's going on inside of her. He has compassion on her and says, don't, don't cry. Don't cry. I don't know what crisis you're in the midst of right now. 
But can I tell you, Christ is not distant from you. Christ cares about you. He has compassion on you. Look what it says in verse 14. Then he came and he touched the open coffin and those who were carried uh, stood still. Now, I always find the humor in the Bible. There's a lot of humor if you look for it. I'm telling you, it's all over. Jesus walks up in the middle of the funeral and these guys are carrying it. They're not just stopped. They're walking with it. Jesus walks up and is like, excuse me, excuse me. And he touches the casket in the middle of the funeral. And you can imagine as they kind of lower it down so Jesus could look inside. Now Jesus looks into the casket. Notice this. And, sa- and he talks to the dead guy. If you were at a funeral and somebody did this, how many of you would freak out a little bit? It's nothing compared to what happens. He says, young man, I say to you, rise up. If I'm at a funeral, I'm at a lot of funerals. I'm a pastor. And some guy comes in and is like, get up. I'd be like, this is not a good situation. <laughs> but not only did he say, get up. The guy gets up. If you're at a funeral and the guy sits up, you should video record it. That's what you should do. This is what happens. And fear came upon all those that were there. And they glorified God and said, a great prophet has risen up in Israel. And God has visited his people. He makes it abundantly clear God is in this place. Why? Because he... A man who of of compassion showed that he cared about this individual and has the power over death. Now, yes, it's true he has power over death. That's not what I want to focus on here. What I want to focus on here is the compassion of Jesus Christ for a woman who understands her life is over. The Bible tells us something about Jesus. And if you're a Jesus follower, you really need to know this. If you're not a Jesus follower today, I'm so glad you're here. You're a seeker. You're wondering about truth. And you're still trying to analyze whether or not you want to be be a believer. Glad you're here. But if you're a follower of Jesus, any followers of Jesus here, if you are, say amen. You need to know this about Jesus Christ. He is a man of deep compassion. But he has compassion because he's been through it. The book of Hebrews tells us something about your Savior, Jesus Christ. It tells us we don't have a high priest who doesn't understand what we go through because he's been touched with the same infirmities that we have. He knows what it is to suffer because he suffered. He knows what it is to go through pain because he's been through pain. He is the one who can appreciate what you're feeling. He is the one who can empathize with where you are. Who else can? Do you know why we get upset with our spouse? Because they don't understand what we're going through. And how can they? Do you know why we get upset with our children or our parents? Because they don't understand what we're feeling. But how can they? We get upset with the church. We get upset with the pastor. We get upset with the politicians. We get upset with our best friends. We even get upset with others all around us. Those who say they love us. Because how could they understand what I'm going through? And what we have in Christ is somebody who has compassion because he understands because he's been there. Do you understand that Jesus knows what it's like to be poor? He knows what it's like, like when my wife and I were first married and we're going through the store and we get hamburger helper and then we go and get hamburger and then we look at the price of hamburger. Do you remember this? You remember being young and you put back the hamburger and you just have the helper? Have you, I want to hear, I just genuinely, because I have. Anybody here ever just have the helper because all you could afford was the helper? Anybody like me? Yeah? So have I. Been there. Jesus, this, that's who Jesus was. Think he doesn't understand? See, this is the problem that we have with leadership all around us. 
They speak of the fact that they care about you, but in reality, they live a completely different life and always will than you. And then we associate their hypocrisy and their confusion and the way they treat you with the way God is. And we think God's the same way up there in his golden palace. And God said, no, I became a man and I lived exactly the way you live. In fact, he lived below the standards of where most of us will live the rest of our lives. He can empathize with what it means to be poor. He can empathize with what it means to have pain. You know the pain of betrayal? Some of you have just went through the pain of betrayal. The person who said they would be with you the rest of their life. Your friend of years was promised. He loved you. You were friends of his. You were friends since you were girlfriends in high school. And then that betrayal took place. The company told you they would take care of you. And now they're suing you or you're suing them. And you're like, nobody cares. The pain of betrayal that I've been through, Jesus Christ does. Jesus Christ knows what it is to not only be betrayed. Jesus Christ knows what it is to be completely and utterly perfectly lonely. The loneliness of Jesus Christ was never better demonstrated than when Christ hung upon the cross. The Bible says, in fulfillment of prophecy, the shepherd was smitten and the sheep scattered, meaning all of his disciples gone. His mother and a few of her friends looking on. John the Apostle back in the corner. And while he was there on the cross dying, carrying the sins of mankind, while your sins and my sins were being placed upon his shoulders, the Bible says as sin came upon him, the holiness of God the Father could not stand to look upon his son with that sin upon him. And the Bible tells us that God the Father, for the first time in, in history of the divine, turned his back on God the Son. And in that moment, he experienced what it was like to be away from God the Father, experiencing the hell of being away from the Creator, the God of heaven, the Father himself. And as God the Father turns his back, he cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani! My God, why have you forsaken me? Say, Josh, I don't know that you know what it's like to feel like God's forsaking you. Okay, maybe I don't, but I will tell you somebody who does know what it's like. And he loves you. And he promised to never leave you or forsake you. He empathizes with you. He feels what you feel. These truths that are found here are demonstrated over and over in the story. In crisis, Christ is in control. And so what we've learned today as we close out the sermon is first, point number one, in crisis, Christ is in control. Say it with me. In crisis, Christ is in control. Point number two is in crisis, Christ is in control. And point number three, you'll never guess. Oh, yeah, there it is. Say it with me. In crisis, Christ is in control. If, if you're... Like some of my friends, you're, you're very um, didactic in your thinking, very rational in your perspective. You may be thinking to yourself, okay, pastor, I liked your points. God's in control and he's compassionate. I like those ideas, but they seem to contradict because if God was in control and he was compassionate, then why am I in crisis in the first place? If God is in control and he has compassion, then why the crisis? 
It's a good question, but it's a question that we don't have time for, and I don't know the answer, so we're going to see you next week. No, I'm just kidding. All right. <laughs> it is a good question, and the answer is found all throughout Scripture. And one of the places you can find the answer is James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Look at what it says. Don't ask the question if you're not willing to hear the answer. Here it is. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. When you're going through it, you have to ask, why am I going through it? And he said, be joyful. Be joyful when you're going through it. Be joyful as you're facing the trial, knowing that the testing of your faith, it produces patience. And patience, when it's had its perfect work in you, it makes you more perfect, complete, lacking nothing. Meaning that God is trying to create you and mold you and make you into the person that he's always wanted you to be. And part of the process of making you into the person you are supposed to be is to put you through it. Friend, the point of your creator is not to save you from it, but to save you through it. And even in this moment, you may be facing crisis and you may say, what do I do? Have joy in it. You say, are, are, you saying, are you saying my problems are building character? Yeah, just like your dad did and your mom did and grandma did. It's a biblical principle. My mother um, was from Pennsylvania and uh, was moved to Las Vegas. And in Pennsylvania, they have things that are different than Las Vegas. They have things like, um, like, uh, like animals and water, you know, and trees and grass and these kind of things. And um, she always liked to bring the, uh, the farm home to us, even though we lived in Las Vegas in a, a, little, a little house. One time she got uh, baby, baby chickens that were still inside of the little egg, you know. She built an incubator in her, um, in her upstairs closet. And I remember as an eight-year-old little boy and my brother 10 and my sister six, and she would gather us around the little incubator, you know, and she would say, okay, now, in about two weeks, we're going to see these eggs break and crack open. There'd be little chicks in there. So every day we'd wake up and run over. And we're like, can we go in? Can we go in? She'd be like, okay. She'd open the door, and inside there'd be this red light beaming in the little incubator. We sat down, and we'd watch, you know, watch. Nothing was happening. And I'd be the first to leave. I'm a middle child. How many of you know what that means? Like, I don't have a long attention span. I just want to have fun, and I want to be hands-on. So I'd watch for like 10 seconds. I'm like, nothing, go. And I would leave. Day after day, this was happening until hatching day. Hatching day. And hatching day, I remember she came and knocked on our doors. And we're like, she, uh, is it happening? It's happening. And so we all ran over to the room. And she, she said, be very quiet, be very quiet. So we opened up the door and we all sat down. And sure enough, all these little chickens were cracking out of their eggs. Some of them half out of the egg. Some just a little beak out, you know. And we're like, oh, this is great. And mom's talking about the process and the birds and the bees and the chickens and all of these things. And, and as I noticed there was one one little chicken that had stuck its beak out that needed my help. You know what I mean? Because I just wanted to help that chicken. And I, I thought to myself as a middle child, I need to be in there breaking out with the chicken. 
And so with my eight-year-old little hand, I reached out, and that's when the loving hand of my mother. How many of you had a loving hand of your mother do that at once in a while, right? What? She said, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to help the chicken. Don't you think I'm, by the way, I'm a nice guy, right? Don't you think Josh is a good person, even at eight years old, trying to help a chicken? Don't you think, if you think I'm a good guy, say, you're a good guy, say it. Not a lot of validation from this service. Say, Pastor, you're a good guy, say it, come on. I don't think, I don't think you feel it. Because like, we know where the story's going, you know, it's pretty obvious. And I wanted to help, and I tried to help, but my mother wouldn't let me help. And then she said something. She said, Josh, you have to allow the chicken to break out itself. You see, the struggle that the chick goes through builds the proper muscle and strength to live the life that God wants the chicken to live. And so my overly empathetic heart and my deeply compassionate soul could have actually hurt the chicken in the long run because I wanted to save him from the problem. You know, you can't help that butterfly out of that cocoon. You can't do it. You go ahead and try and you'll see what happens to that butterfly. Some of you right now are, are asking, how in the world am I in the midst of this mess? This, this, this perfectly organized world that I've created around me, it seems to be falling apart. Hey, it could be the gracious destruction of your perfectly organized world. Could it be possible that you have a friend, a child, a nephew, a niece that is going through the destruction of their organized world? And you want to come and help them out of the cocoon. You want to come and break open the egg. And can I tell you, hey, hey, hold. Maybe they need that muscle. They'll be fine. In the end, what we learn is that in crisis, even in crisis, Christ is always in control. That's what we learn next week. Part two. We'll see you there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the opportunity you've given us to study it. And my prayer is that you would allow us to see that regardless of the crisis, you're in control. I pray for my friends that have gone through so much. Some of them, genuinely, they don't have a lot of people to understand. But Lord, help them to see that you understand. Help them to seek that from you above all things. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you for watching Josh Tice's most recent Bible sermon. If you think of someone who may enjoy this one, go ahead and send it or post it today. If you're ever in Las Vegas on Sunday, we'd love for you to stop by Southern Hills and see us in person. If you benefit from this virtual ministry, we'd also like to encourage you to support our gospel efforts by sending a donation to the ministries of Southern Hills. You can do so by visiting southernhillslv.com and clicking the Give tab.